1: Bombus. big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code
2: ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
0: This is the Mark Porras Podcast.
2: Welcome, everybody. I uh, got, got a few tweets this morning saying, where the fuck is my... Uh, podcast this week, last week, last two weeks, well, just by way of explanation, uh, uh, after my bout, I went overseas, I had some work to do, Um, I didn't have to go overseas because of the fight, but I went overseas to do some work, I've been in Amsterdam, I might talk a little bit about this later, I was travelling through Europe, then I went to Singapore for a while, I'm home now, I've been back since last Thursday, um, and today's our first show for two weeks, so I apologise for those people who've been hanging out for it, but today's a really interesting one. it's a, and I must say I've come back to the best weather of all time. It's awesome here. Um, I want to welcome everybody into the room today. Uh, we have a special guest, and Ange Postacoglu, and we're going to have a talk to him um, in a minute or two. Hello, Nick Boris how are you going? Nick Fordham, how are you going? Jakey, how are you going, champ? Um, <coughs> it's just great to be back. Um, this is one of the things I look forward to every week. It's sort of an honour from my point of view uh, to be able to stand here and uh, interview someone like Ange Postacoglu. Um He's a very humbling sort of guy to, to be talking to, given that he has such a big job ahead of him um, and has been doing this big job. He's a young guy, rel- relatively speaking, um, and I love to speak to younger people, younger men, younger women, but who are at the top of the tree and uh, who are performing in what I what I consider first-class fashion. Um, Ange is, uh, obviously, he's of Greek background, the name of <laughs> But that's not the reason he's here. I don't have <laughs> such favouritism for Greeks as to call someone in for that reason. But it actually, in addition to everything, it makes me even more heartened to be actually talking to someone who's been successful, who comes from the same heritage as my family. That's a big deal for me too. Um, so I feel proud of the fact that, uh, again, I'm able to talk to a person of uh, Greek background, brought up in Australia, educated Australia, done all these years in Australia, but has actually excelled. So um, Ange postacoglu um, was born in Athens, is that right, Ange?
1: That's a, absolutely right, Mark. Yeah. Um, How old were you when you came to Australia? So we yeah uh, yeah we came here when uh, when I was five and yeah well yeah, as you said uh, similar backgrounds. I think it's it's um, whenever I reflect kind of on my journey, just how much of it has come because of where I've come from, you know. Because uh, the old man just um, obviously packed up the bags, uh, came over here for a better life. I, I don't think it was a better life for him because all I can remember him doing is working, working pretty hard him and my mum, um, but they obviously came here for a better life, obviously, myself and my sister and um, came here with no relatives, no friends, didn't speak the language, but I reckon that sort of instinct my father to sort of go down, take that risky move and go down a lot, road less travelled, that's definitely in me. Yeah.
2: But that's, that's, and that's a really important point. I mean, of course, today it happens not with Greeks, but it's probably Chinese Correct. and Thais yeah. and... That's right. Look, in some cases, Syrians and parts of Asia, yeah. they're going to be the next wave of these people and, of course, you know, we all want to put put them down and say, no, you can't come into our, our country. But you and I both come from that environment and uh, I have a similar story, you know. Like, and so that, that concept that you have just mentioned now is one of the things I want to explore. Um, do you think that your success is, a, is attributed not just to the hard work and all that sort of stuff you put into it and obviously a skill that you've, you know, you've honed, over the years, your dad didn't give you that skill. That's a skill you've honed and other people have helped you with, coaches and mentors and all sorts of people, and obviously your own physical ability. But how much of your character do you think has contributed to your success as a result of having seen what your parents did growing oh, up?
1: Absolutely, I think a massive part. As I said, you, you probably don't realise until you get uh, – you, you called me a young man, but uh, you know, I turned 50 a couple of weeks ago. And, and as you get – I guess as you get older, you, you – you reflect on, on your own journey. And um, as I said, I, I keep thinking about my dad's decision to come here. And I reckon every major decision I've made in my professional life, sometimes in my personal life, whenever I've had a choice between doing what's safe and doing something that's a little bit risky, a little bit edgy, I, I've gone down that road. And I reckon that goes back to, like I said, my father making a decision years ago to, to up and take his family to, to a land he, he didn't know. So that that sort of character trade I think is in me. And I think I've done that um, throughout my career. As I said, I, I continue to do it today. It's, it's uh, you know, I'm not known for, for playing it safe. Um, that's not saying that you throw a convention out the window, but with all the information available, I'll always go down, you know, I call it the road less travelled because I just feel um, that's closer to my spirit in terms of the kind of person I am. And I think that goes back to the journey you know, we made when I was five years old. So just just
2: going down the road less travelled, I mean, what we're talking about here is thinking unconventionally but with a conventional undertone. Absolutely. In other words, <clears throat> what you're saying is that you like to test out other theories in terms of maybe strategies and or processes as to how you approach coaching the Socceroos. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, even with, without getting technical, but even the way we play. Um, for a long time, uh, as you said, I, I grew up in this country and I love my sport. And sometimes it's been hard to love my sport in this country because obviously it wasn't always the, you know, um, well accepted in, in, I guess, the sporting community. But now the game's grown and and I think a maturity, a sign of that maturity is now for us to play the kind of football that people admire overseas, which... For a long time, people were saying Australians couldn't play, right? So my sort of thinking and my um, whole strategy was, no, look, I'll, I'll show them that Australians can play the kind of football they play. Now, that's going down a, a little bit more of a riskier road. Because- could you explain that? They
2: could? Like, like, I mean, I'm a rugby league guy, but I do love Absolutely, my, I do yeah. love my yeah. soccer yeah. And, or football, and I, I do watch mm. been a four World Cup finals, and one of the things I notice is that <clears throat> the European teams – do play different to the way Australia played. Yeah. But I've never known technically what that means.
1: So from, from I guess, the most basic premise is um, we've always uh, sort of considered ourselves as less technical players, so that means um, – worrying about less uh, what we do when we have the ball, and worrying and, and concentrating when we don't. Because we've always had, it's just been Australian, mate. We're, we've got a fantastic sporting culture. We've got a number of sports and we have that competitive edge in us. It's innate, you know, from from the moment we're born. So the physicality, the the competitive side of our game has always been great. And coaches in Australia, particularly the foreign coaches who come in have concentrated on that. So that means, you know, we've done a lot of work on when the opposition have the ball. Overseas, they back themselves a little bit more and they say, you know what, let's concentrate on when we've got the ball of hurting the opposition. And that's what I want us to become. And I think we have that in us because of the competitive nature. So there's more of an emphasis of, you know, what we do when we have the ball rather than worrying just about what the opposition are doing. Um, it takes a bit of courage to play that way because you're saying that, you know what, well, we're going to measure up against the Germans, the Dutch, the Brazilians and, and go with them toe to toe rather than retreat and, and follow more of our basic instinct. So that's kind of. In a nutshell. Um, but I wouldn't go down that road unless I thought we could be successful either. So. And how
2: much of an influence does, does that have, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of the age of the guys you've been picking with, in other words, their yeah, general age yeah. and where they currently play?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I think, um, again, as you said with coaches, I think it's a generational thing as well. So it's a lot easier with younger guys to mould them. Um, look, when I took over two years ago, there was pretty much a, and I guess that, that's happened to me in most jobs, most coaches, sporting coaches, we're change managers, mate, because they bring us in when things aren't going well. You never take over the premiership team. You're usually taking over the team that's on the bottom. That's right. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So so when you go in, you, you, usually if you just go in and, and you know just do what's been happening in the past, you're not going to get much of a, an impact. So when I took over the Socceroos, um, even though they qualified for the World Cup, the feeling was we needed to regenerate the team. That means bringing in some younger blokes um, and change the way the team played. So they were a great little sort of things for me to tackle because that's what I love doing. Well, they're big decisions
2: too. Yeah, because I, it could be unpopular sometimes.
1: I love that aspect of it, though, mate. I mean, you don't you don't go into to coaching to be popular, Mark. It never yeah, happens, yeah. mate. Even when you're on top, there's half the world that, that don't rate you. So that's never worried me. The whole, I really love that aspect of it. That the fact that you can come in and make an impact. So well, that's
2: interesting because as a leader. That you're just talking about leadership qualities. You're go you not going to become. You're not going in for a popularity contest. Yeah, Absolutely not. I mean, and uh, you know, anyone who's as a business person, you're in the business of coaching soccer or coaching football. The first point you're just making. You're not going in to be popular. You're going in to make a change. And when you make a change, you've got to have courage. And risk requires courage. Is, is what you're saying. And your father had courage. My father had courage. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to go to. Listen, if someone said to me, Mark, Australia's doing it tough. Do you want to move to China and start speaking Chinese, <laughs> and move some place in China where like, I can take your whole family with? I'd actually crap myself. Um, Don't know whether I'd have that sort of courage that my dad had and your dad had. That's probably more than you and I'll ever have. Absolutely. Ever. Um, But what you're talking about here is a business leader to take risks requires courage and it definitely requires you to resist popularity. Now, when you made changes to the Socceroos, obviously it was successful because you won the Asia Cup in 2015 – be career
1: yeah yeah I mean, It wasn't successful initially because you know whenever you go through change there's always going to be a little bit of uh, turmoil a little bit of inconsistency in results and we certainly had that um and there was a period prior to the Asia Cup where uh, things weren't going well we hadn't won for a while and and that wasn't by design but also at the same time I was preparing a group of young blokes to get them battle-hardened yeah so you prepare for a fight with Danny Green by not picking easy sparring partners, by making it tough for yourself, yeah? So I was doing the same with the young group of players. We played away from home the whole time we were prior to the Asia Cup. I didn't want them to play at home where they'd get the home comforts of a home crowd and good conditions. So we played away. Now, that meant we didn't win a game leading into the to the Asia Cup. We had rankings dropped to 100. But that was – and that wasn't popular and it certainly didn't do me any good um, from an outsider's perspective. Did you question yourself at any stage? Absolutely not, no. That was a strategy, mate. That was – Mine, I was looking at the end game, and the end game was winning the Asia Cup. How was I going to prepare this group of players, my staff, to be ready for January? That's okay, you're I the
2: into. CEO, Ange. You're the CEO of the Socceroos. That's mm. the way I look at it, right? Yep. I mean, coach, CEO, whatever,
1: same yep. thing. And you report to who? David Gallop, who's the CEO, and the chairman, Frank Lowy. Okay,
2: so did your yeah. guys, your bosses, your direct report, do they question you at any say? say, hey, what's going on in Ange? We're not going I, too good in the beginning.
1: Yeah, they don't question me, but... I oh, know they'd be they'd be concerned, absolutely, and and you've got to take them along for the ride, though. But this because you sign up for it at the start, as far as I'm concerned. That's that was the strategy. That's why they brought me in. If they didn't want that sort of change and that sort of impact to happen, they probably should have appointed somebody else. Because I was never going to go down that safe road. They knew that, and I think they wanted that. How important so- is that
2: to you? I mean, how important is it to lay out your strategy day one and to actually explain to these guys, articulate to your direct reports, your board what could occur and how important it is for you to actually have had that in your own mind
1: I think it's important you take everyone along from the journey including managing up in, in my you know in my um, position you, you I rely on the board and, and management for resources for um, support in other areas so I can't just say to them listen just trust me let's this is what's going to happen so um, you take them along for the ride now Frank Lowe's a very very successful businessman, as you know mate but at the end of the day, I still had to paint him the picture of what I was doing. And I know they would have had, still would have had concerns because they're not totally in control. I'm in control. Um, but I think along the way I explained them what we were doing and I think from their perspective they were prepared to to sit there and wait and see the results. And uh, I, was, I was super confident as, you, as much as you can be in sport, but that come January we would be ready. What that meant in terms of an end result, You know, like I say, sometimes sport takes you down funny roads, but we would be ready in January. And the way we would be ready was by taking this hard road and everyone clearly understood why I was doing what I was doing.
2: So what you're saying is that um, it's important to manage, excuse me, and I don't mean this in a manipulative way, but manage the expectations of your investors, people who invested in you, invested their faith in you, whether it's faith or money, and anyone who's a small business owner and anyone who's a business owner who's looking for investors or has shareholders or whatever, this is important. You have to manage the expectations of those around you and you have to deliver as well, most important. You most ju- important. You, you, you can manage it by saying, don't expect this, but you must also tell them what to expect and then you've got to fucking deliver because if you don't deliver, you're in trouble.
1: When, when, when you're sitting across from Frank Lowe and he says, well, you know, I want to win the Asia Cup, you kind of know. I mean, he, he says all the right things about, you know, supporting me and it's great that I'm Australian, but... I always remember the first meeting I had with him. He said, you know, it's great we've got an Australian charge. I always want an Australian. We'll support you. We like you. You've done this. He goes, but you need to know I like winning. And that's all that I remember. (laughs) And and, and, And that's the reality of it. So when I'm talking about, you know, the strategy, I understand what the end game is, mate. You know, if we fall short of that, then that's me gone. So not that I worry about that stuff, but for me, from my perspective, it's about saying, well, this is what we started on. This is the discipline of doing it. It's going to be maybe unpopulate. not be great for my uh, job security in the short term, but as I've always said, uh, once you start worrying about keeping your job, it's the first day you go to losing your job. As far as I'm concerned, I've never worried about that. It's about you know what what's our goal and what we're we trying to do, what are we trying to achieve, and sticking to that.
2: You know, I I mean, leadership, coaches, leadership, leadership in any in any sense, whether you're a CEO of a of a company that's running selling apples and oranges, or whether you're CEO or coach of you know, Australian soccer team, football team. The job's perilous. But what's interesting about what you just said is that you've got to be a ruthless type of person. I don't mean an ass, but a ruthless type of person in that that you know what your objective is. You don't care what the outcomes are in relation to yourself as long as you achieve your objective and you're prepared to take the outcomes no matter what happens to you. So in other words, if I don't get there, I'm gone, I'm gone. You've got to be ruthless in that regard.
1: Absolutely, but I also think when... The people around you see that, when the players see that, when the staff see that, that, all right, this bloke's not worried about losing his job, so he must really believe in what he's talking about here. And then they're willing to sacrifice their own sort of individual, um, you know, self-preservation and say, all right, well, if he's going to do it, because ultimately, as everyone knows, if it's, if the team's not going well, it's the coach that gets the bullet. It's never the it's, – it's rarely the whole team. You don't sack 20 players, you sack a coach. It's easier. Absolutely. So when they see me – Absolutely steadfast. And like I said, through that period where things weren't going well, my language is never negative to the players or I said this is this is this has to happen. This is I'm preparing us for, for what's coming in January. So keep your heads down, keep work this will work.
2: Well, I want to ask you about that, Andrew. That, that's interesting. Um how you deal with players. Now I've experienced lots of different coaches, um lots in the state of Origin especially, and um and at the Roosters. And some coaches Um, tend to lose it. Um, And I was only talking earlier about the new generation of coaches that I've seen. There's you, there's Michael Chica, and there's Trent Robinson. Robinson from the Roosters, young guy, three minor premierships, never been done before. Chica for the Australian Rugby Union side, and you for the Socceroos. All similar sort of to me in age group. In that, There's a a few years difference between you and Robinson, but I, I mean you are the new guys coming through. And it seems to be this generational thing of yourselves and why you're all successful, that that similarity comes down to a certain style of coaching. I mean, how you relate to the young guys. And all of you picked younger guys on average. Mm. And all of you have picked those players that most people would not ordinarily pick. And you've turned them into much better players. Um, you have your own particular strategy in relation to soccer. They have theirs in relation to their codes. But nonetheless, you have a similar style what is your style of making young young boys, young players, into
1: men? And that, and that's always the challenge. Um, yeah, I'm sure you've experienced it with 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 your boy, mate. I mean, it, it, it's say your boy, but he's a man, you know. And 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 relatively, f- a boy. Yeah, right with you yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, as as you realise and and you get further away from the time you were playing, when I was playing, if the coach told me to do something, mate, I did it. There was never a question about anything. There was just, he asked me to mark that guy or or do something in a game. That action was automatic because of the world we lived in. That doesn't happen anymore. So people, young people today, I think are a little bit smarter. I think that they're, they're certainly exposed to a lot of things at a younger age. So they've got a lot more questions before they'll do it. Now, there's two... Two tools I always say to managers these days are absolutely essential. One is knowledge. So when that question comes to you of why do you want me to do this, you better have an answer to, to get that person to compel him to do it. And secondly, language. And you got to talk to them in their language sometimes, you know, and, and I have a lot of conversations. I'm not great at – I'm not – kind of guy who gets close to the players, I don't socialise with them, I keep a distance, it's just my management style, it's just the way I like uh, uh, managing, but when I do have conversations with with the players in particular, I listen a hell of a lot to the language they use. Usually they'll be saying what I'm saying, but in their own words, and then that way when I I need to give them a, a, a message, i give it to them in their language. So to me, you know, knowledge and language are the two most important tools you have today, I think as a leader, particularly of young people, because without that... Um, there may be fantastic reasoning for you to, to want to do something, but if you can't get that message across, all you're going to get is resistance. Resistance is energy, is time wasted. I don't I don't have that. When I got to give a team talk at halftime or at the Asia Cup, you know, I, I literally had two minutes after the, the Koreans equalised before extra time to get a message to a group of young guys that they were capable of, of picking themselves up off the floor because we'd literally been knocked out in the 89th minute with a goal, that they had the Energy and the will within them, and what we've done to be able to to come up and win that game. I couldn't do that if if my language absolutely was framed in a way that they understood. That's because it's interesting. Like, <clears throat> and my experience again is in rugby league,
2: but as with coaches, but the old school was you do what I tell you, otherwise you can fuck off. Um, and
1: that doesn't work anymore.
2: No, it doesn't work anymore. That's interesting. And uh, and it's one of the things I've noticed about Trent Robinson is that he's very um. Uh, pensive. He steps back. He doesn't say a lot. He's not super close. In other words, he's not out in the booze with them and uh, hanging out with them and all that sort of stuff. He knows when to play with them, when to teach them, when to mentor them, when to manage. And he pulls in and pulls out all the time. He's very patient with them. Um, and you're right. I mean, Just reflecting, similar to what you just said, I, I watch, I see him, he listens to them a lot. And when he does, does say something, they listen to him. Um, and did you, did you consciously adopt that style?
1: I think it, it sits more naturally with me. Um, just my personality in general. I'm not. I'm not uh, even in a social con- context. I'm not an extrovert. I'm, I kind of sit back and you know uh, quietly in the corner and have my conversations with people. So that's that's my style. And I think that's that's the other thing. You know, when I talk to sort of young coaches, is you know. Don't try and copy anyone. You can't be anyone else. You, because the other thing people see these days—they're pretty intuitive. They'll know if you're putting something on just to, to, mm-hmm. as an act. You know, you, you got to be true to yourself, and that's my nature. So that was kind of my leadership style. But as I've got older, I've kind of, I've, uh, like I said, and the generation gap gets bigger. I've been really, um, yeah, sensitive to, to understanding what young people are going through today and, and how they get to where they get to. So that, as I said. Uh, yeah, you know, my message has to be absolutely crystal clear. I mean, the old you do this or or you can piss off still works, but very short-term stuff, mate. Yeah. You know, it'll work today, but tomorrow they're going to say, all right, you want me to do it again, you better give me a good reason for doing it. Do I they did actually ask you? Do they,
2: you, do, you? Or do you I, just see it in their eyes? I, mean, I, you, I think
1: you, most of the time you see it in their eyes. I mean, there, there's always, you know, I, I kind of – I don't say that they're scared of me, but I keep a distance that they're they're, they're very respectful of me, so they're not going to question anything I do. But you can see – as you said, in their eyes and and in their nature, are they totally convinced by this? And if they're not, you can pick it up. And and that's where you've got to be really alert. As you said with, with Trent, you sit back and observe a lot. You know, sometimes with some of the modern coaches, people might come in and say, geez, what do they do? They don't look like they do a lot. But I think that those powers of observation are absolutely key because you can pick up those signals because he might not come as a question of why he needs to do it. But with an action, you'll see he's out in the field. He's not really certain about what I've just said, told him to do. So I've got to I've got to bring him in and show him why we need him to do it. And when you're doing
2: this, do you choose a leadership group, which in, say, my business, where I have my senior manager, my senior executive group, um, do you choose a group to not sit above everybody else but sort of to, to lead? Do you have a leadership group? Does yeah, it it's, it's,
1: it's part of it. I mean, especially when you've got a young group. So when I, I kind of took over um, – Yeah, we had a a golden generation, they call it, of players who all came through the, you know, from 2006 World Cup, 2010 to the back end of the 2014 together as a group. But what that happened was that they all grew up together and there was a whole bunch of senior players and then there was a bit of a vacuum. I kind of cleaned that out and brought in all these young players, but I needed some senior players. So, you know, Timmy Cahill, Mila Jednak and Mark Bresciano were sort of the three that remained. And I thought it was essential that they bought into to the vision I had, because ultimately they spend more time with the players than I do, much more time with the players than I do. They're in the talking, they're in the rooms talking to one another, they're out in the field in the, in the heat of battle. What message and and as a young player, you're looking to your senior players, what message are they giving? So they needed to be on board. I don't you know like say so you don't put them above anything, but what you do is you again you 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 bring them in to the inner sanctum a little bit and give them paint them a picture and, Like I said, I remember in the middle of our terrible, not terrible run, but our hard run just prior to the Asia Cup, I said to the whole group, I said, come January, Milay Ednak, who's the captain, is going to be holding up the trophy. Where you're going to be sitting is going to be a choice of yours. You'll either be up next to him or on the TV watching it. I think that made Milay understand the senior players, hey, I don't want to miss out on that. And then they brought the younger guys along for the journey.
2: I mean, I guess there's a fine line, though, between, and I've seen this again, there's a fine line between what you just explained. And over time, the senior group getting bigger and bigger and bigger and actually thinking they're bigger than the whole team. I mean, you've got to manage that fine line. When they no longer inspire the younger guys and the younger guys feel completely disconnected with the senior guys. I mean, how do you manage that process? And that happens in business all the time.
1: Yeah, it happens in business. And and it's it's a big one in sport too where, um, as you said, uh, sometimes that whole senior aspect can be actually negative because – you know, as a young person, um, you know, you, you get to that point, particularly in, in, in dressing rooms where, you know, senior players can end up being smart asses and, and being quite demeaning to young guys. And, and again, in my day, that was all right. You kind of copped it. I didn't say a word in the dressing room for the first four years I was there as a young player because, you know, the senior players ruled the roost. Again, it's a different dynamic today. So you don't want your senior players. The whole environment is about improvement. You know, I say to the senior players, this is not about enjoying the last end of your career, the last part of your career. So when I speak to Team Cahill, who's been to three World Cups, wants to go to fourth, I don't talk to him about, you know, let's enjoy this last part. I say, let's make this last part the best of the whole lot. So if I'm t- saying that to you to try and improve, I need that coming through to the younger players. So don't you know, don't demean them, don't keep them in their place because you don't know what we could be missing out on. The next greatest thing is sitting in that room and he needs to be encouraged. So the senior players understand Mate, there's only one pair of hand on the wheels, and that's mine, on the steering wheel. That's mine. Players, the senior players know that they're there to help cultivate, but they're not running the place.
2: It's just sort of, um, I I think it's sort of an interesting concept. I mean, on one hand, you're, you're sort of managing and directing the senior players. They're already tough and hardened mentally for the game. But on the other hand, you've got to, do the reverse for the younger players, you've got to harden them up. You've got to, like you've got to put, put a piece of steel down the middle of their back. You've got to galvanise them. And as young guys, they can easily go either way. They can, they can quickly fall apart. They've, they're quite brittle. I mean, they act tough and they you know, like to get on the drink and you know they, lots of bravado out there on the training field and they're probably, you know, in your case, you know, kicking the ball in the air and putting it with the head and showing all these little tricky skills and all sort of stuff. But that doesn't mean that when they get on the field, when they're down 89th minute and they're down a goal – that doesn't mean they can turn around because that, that takes something outside of skill. How do you go about trying to harden them for those moments? Because they're the only moments that count. Absolutely. All the rest of the game, anyone can do that. They're the moments that count. And, How do
1: you, and, do you do that? And particularly at um, international level because, you know, at club level you can have, a, you can have an off week, um, lose a game of, of football or rugby or whatever it is and, and there's always next week and, and the latter shows that you're still in a decent spot. In international football, a loss usually means the end. You know, you're in a tournament, you lose in the quarterfinals. That's it. There's no next week. So it becomes even – so, in fact, international football, you're kind of – that part of the personality of a player is almost essential. That's where, that's where we really separate kind of just the good players to the ones who have that little bit of edge in that time. So to cultivate that – and I think you do that through your environment. I think from the moment they walk in – we've got a camp coming up in two weeks' time. We've got a game against Jordan. From the moment they walk into Soccero camp, they kind of know what that's about. There's an edge to everything we do. There's not in terms of, uh, you know, really um, having a a great deal of pressure there, but there's always an edge to understanding that, you know what, this game is the most important game we've got. And that kind of um, instills in them an understanding of what's required. Some of them don't cut it, mate, at the end. Sometimes you find them, you put them in that situation. The idea is to find that out before the game starts. So we do that at training. Training's very intense.
2: Do they find that at themselves? Do they work it out for themselves? I think
1: so. Sometimes they do. That It's it's just a little bit too much for them. And it might be just a transitional thing, too much for them at the moment. They come back after subsequent times and improve. Others are just never up to it. We've had some great players at club level who just haven't been able to cut it at international level. And, it, and like I say, it starts with your, your, your training. You know? Our training's really competitive. It's really intense. We might train for... 30 minutes, but that 30 minutes is going to be the most intense 30 minutes that they've had. And that's driven by the, the staff, the coaches, myself and the players. How
2: do you get players from Europe, UK, who, sorry, who normally play in those environments, yeah. don't necessarily play here in Australia, and then sort of bring in from all these various places They've probably got used to new cultures, they're probably speaking a new language, they might be playing in France or Italy or something like that, in Holland, they come back and they haven't seen each other for ages and then just say, okay guys, you cobbled together this is our mission.
1: And, and, and that was the, the biggest challenge, I guess, for me, coming from a club environment where you've got them every day. A lot easier to, to cultivate a culture and environment when you've got them every day. Um, you're virtually not brainwashing them, but you, you, you're preparing them every day. Now- How long do you have them for? I have them for literally probably 10 days. And before a game, that'll mean two training sessions. But that it's
3: even harder for you because they're coming soccer the world game. They're all coming from four corners of absolutely. the earth. You know, so, whereas I mean it's bad enough like state of origin you get guys from different clubs playing
1: again. Yeah, but. yeah, no. So I mean my, my kind of normal um, week. I mean your old man's probably up watching the financial markets around the world. I'm up all night watching football games from all over yeah, the yeah, world, yeah. mate. You know I was up last night from four o'clock watching a player play. Yeah. I think again, and it comes back to what you were saying earlier, Mark. It's about How you're thinking is. So I said, when I come in, I I said, All right, how are we going to change this? Because I needed to create that. I needed to create a bond with these guys all over the world. And again, if you start thinking a little bit differently, get some smart minds around you. And and that's what I did. And and we've come up with a system where they've got an app on their phone now where every day there's probably a group of about 40 or 50 players who I've constantly got on my radar. For five minutes of every day that morning, they've got to put in how long they slept for, what their weight is, what they did at training. Now, that five minutes of information for our sports science geeks. They love that stuff, mate. they I mean, to me, it's just all numbers, but they love it. For me, what that does, that creates a connection with all these guys that for five minutes of every day, they remember they're a socceroo and what that means. So that the stuff that we espouse in terms of values, culture, even the way we play, for five minutes of that day, they go, they don't forget that there's a camp coming up and I'm a socceroo. And that way, when they come into camp, we just pick up with. We left off last night. We don't have to go back to square one. They're already, you know, as the countdown leads in, a week to go, five days to go, and they're punching in. They know soccer camp's coming up. That's
2: a good point because um, it's an interesting point from my point of view. Um, I had dinner last week with Gus Gould, um, for just just catch-up thing, <coughs> and he explained to me the state of origin. I don't know if you ever follow the state of yeah, origin yeah. that much, yeah. but, like, Queensland have this sense that when you're – if you're a Queenslander, you always want to play for Queensland. Um and that's he reckons that's the reason why Queensland always beat us, beat New South Wales, us being, being New South Welshmen. Um, because in New South Wales, you want to play for your club, then you want to play for your country. In Queensland, you want to do all, but playing for Queensland is the pinnacle. And in order to get that right culture, um, you're, what you're saying to me now is that you're trying to remind them and get into their heads that you they want to play for Australia, for the Socceroos, and given that some of these players could be playing for, you know, top clubs in Europe, Absolutely, you know, yeah. which is, yeah. by the way, is the pinnacle of all club soccer, is it a difficult thing to get their heads around saying one day I'm playing for uh, Barcelona and the next day I'm playing for the Socceroos?
1: You know, because the way I describe it to them, you don't actually play for the Socceroos. You are a Socceroo. There's a massive difference there, mate, in any organisation. You know, in, in all your in all your companies, I'm sure it's the most successful ones are not the people who work for you but who feel like they're part of what you do. Mm. And that's the difference for me. I think, that the, I think the best team I've seen espouse a sporting culture in the world are the All Blacks, right? The yeah. All Blacks have been the most successful for a very long time. And it all comes back to, yes, it's about what they do on the field and, and the playing style and, and the ability of the player, but to be an All Black is something special. And that's what I wanted to create with the Socceroos, is to say, that, you know what, you don't play for the Socceroos. You are a Socceroo. That's a whole different set of – those two words change everything in that sentence because when you say you are a Socceroo, that means a whole different thing, mate. It's interesting
3: you've got guys from rugby league like, you know, Sonny Bill-Williams, Roger Tuavasa-Shek. They've, you know, gone across the drink, now playing rugby league, settled in Australia, um, you know, bonded to the teams that they, that, that they play with. And they still get quoted in the media week to week, saying that eventually they want to be
1: All Blacks. They want to go back there and play. And for see, it. that's the interesting. They don't say, "I want to play for New Zealand." Y- yeah. They say, "I want to be an All Black," yeah. because to be an All Black means something separate. Mm. Yep. And that's what I want to do with the Socceroos. To say when when they say I am a Socceroo, not I play for the Socceroo. There's more meaning to it. And like I said, that's not just for sport. I think that's for any organisation. No, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think once people feel like they're working for you, yeah, you'll get an end result, but nothing remarkable. Once they feel they're part of you, well, that's a whole different ballgame, mate.
2: Yeah, that works for us. I mean, we do that with Yellowbrick Road. You know, you know, these guys are – they are Yellow Brick Road. That's that's how they, that's how we try to – you know, we build a culture within them. And I, I think one of the successful things that I've seen observed from other coaches in different codes is that they make them a rooster or they make them, you know, they make them a wallaby or they make them a, an all-black. In your case, you make them a soccer And irrespective of what else they're doing. That's right. And that's a very clever psychology. Um, When does psychology. uh, Where's where's the trade off? I mean, are you. Is it real? I mean, are they. Is it you getting. Talking him into being a socceroo? Or is it. Is it them making a decision they're a socceroo and you just telling them that's where they're at? I mean, how how does it all work?
1: It's a a bit of a balancing act. It's. it's, Some of it's. uh, (coughs) You know, some of it's smoke and mirrors. You just. You know, you're trying to get convince people that this is the right thing, right way to go. But some of it becomes tangible, some of it's real because they, ultimately, mate, they're, they're still they're warriors. They're out on the pitch. I don't do that. You know, when the game starts, when the real action happens, I'm sitting on the I'm sitting on the sideline, mate. I'm not getting hurt. I'm not I'm not running out of breath. I'm not screaming for oxygen. It's them. So when they're doing that, I want them to do it for something more than just winning a game of football. I want them to realise that there's something greater here. Because like I said, we, most of them have got very, very successful playing careers. That's where they earn the money. They don't earn the money playing for the Socceroos. They don't earn, get the fame and the, and all the, the the glamour stuff playing for the Socceroos. This is about something different. This is about you know, doing something for your country that no one's ever done before. This is about legacy stuff that you'd be telling your kids about one day. And that's, that's real. So when you're out there on the battlefield and, you know what, it's a race between me and you, and we're both out of oxygen, I'm trying to give them that extra edge to say, you know, you keep going, mate. You
2: and you believe going. in yourself because I'm a time Absolutely. I mean, I guess, I mean, you know, going back to our roots, I don't know which part of Greece your family comes from, but my fam- family come very close to Spartan. That's yeah. why the Spartans were so formidable. They didn't fight for Sparta. They were Spartans. Excellent.
1: Excellent.
2: They were born Spartans sure. and they lived Spartans and they were Spartans no matter what. And they, nobody ever beat them, according to legend. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that's the same for to be a successful Socceroo, as an individual, you've got, to, you've got to, when you're out there, as you said, you're on your last legs, you're screaming for oxygen, you're on the field, and the opposition's trying to nail you, and they may be ahead of you, you got to say, No, I'm going to make this happen because I'm a socceroo.
1: And I think that's a little bit part of the Australian culture as well. I mean, I, I, I look at Australia as, as a nation, and, and, you know, with the population we've got, we've been world champions in just about every sport, mate. It, it defies logic, and not just sport, but in business, in life in general, as a country. A very young country with a small population, we've conquered just about every Everest there is, except for a few, including my sport. So that's my goal, mate. I want to make us world champions in I my sport. That. Yeah. So, I think that's part of our nature, and and and, I, I want to bring that out in, in in what I do with the people I am with. To Can I ask you a question?
2: Because I, I I watched Australia play Italy in um in Berlin, mm. and um, and I watched the Italians fall over and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, it's not Australian, is it? Nah. So how much of that – I mean, do you, I mean, I've mean, I seen rugby league where guys, you know, they know they're going to get a penalty if, the, if they fall on the ground, they mm. stay on the ground, the referee's going to do the mm. video, they're going to replay the video and then the referee will see someone sort of accidentally just tap them on the head or something like that. How much of um, – do you coach that into your players? Do you, do you say take advantage of the penalties? or do you, What do you
1: do? It's not a coaching thing but it, it's definitely a cultural thing that, you know what, that's not us. We, we – it's not just about win by any means. I don't think that that works either. Ultimately, we've got to, yeah, you know, we've got to resonate with the Australian public as well. They've got to come out. Oh, they're our customers. Mm. Our customers are the fans. Mm. No point winning the Asia Cup with no one's watching. Mm. It means nothing, mate. We need packed full of stadiums. And what Australians, sporting fans want, they want to see their teams having a red hot go. They want to see um, an attacking intent. They want to see aggressiveness. That's got to be, and that's, it's the same in our code, mate. Doesn't make, doesn't, doesn't make any difference. We've got to show those kind of Australian values. And I think that's, that becomes a bit of a weapon because there's no doubt once we kick into a certain space in terms of our style, I think teams will fear us because they know, you know what, if you hit us, we won't go down, mate. So, what's your alternative to that?
2: So when you play the, the those Yugoslavian teams like Serbia or whatever, they are a big physical bastards, yeah, who yeah, big strong. Yeah, they they would just run into you. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've
1: got to keep or, going.
2: Do you have a, You have one style against them compared to the style you have against Germany, who are very defensive and
1: no, no. Strategic. I, I, I think what we're trying to get to a space is that we're going to back our style of game against anybody. Right. So that means against the world's best. So when we get to, you know, we qualify for the next World Cup and we have to play Germany or Brazil, yeah, they, you've got to respect the strengths. Like any opposition, any competition, you've got to, to analyse the opposition, your competition in, in the game, find out what their strengths and weaknesses are, exploit the weaknesses um, and, and you know, nullify their strengths, but ultimately back your game style. And that's what I, this point I want to get to with our teams, to say, regardless of who we're playing, we're going to play this way. We're going to take the game to them. Most of it's about just having an attacking intent we're going to take the game to them and see how they cope with that with that pressure because the one thing we can be that i think a lot of other countries aren't necessarily as relentless in that in that space to say you know what regardless of the score regardless of the opposition regardless of the conditions we're going to keep going for 90 minutes 95 minutes if you need to and that's kind of where we get we want to be be getting to
2: well i i you know i, I could talk to you for hours seriously <laughs> um and um, we, we're time constrained and i really want to say thank you for, you for you coming in, but I also want to say good luck because, one, you've picked the most lofty goal that Australia has not achieved yet, just to win a World Cup, and I, I believe you can do it from talking to you today. Two, I think you're probably trying to do the most complicated thing in sport that any Australian coach has ever done, in that you're going to be building young men to become strong men to go out and take on the Brazilians and their crazy sort of uh, style of football, the attacking football, the Germans and their defensive style of football, the English and their style of football, and, um, you know, the Dutch and everybody else, the Serbians are going to come and try and bash everybody, or the Yugoslavian countries are going to try and bash everyone. I think it's a, a, a really complicated psychological mind game That you're going to build your players into, as well as all the skills and all the other fitness and all the other stuff. But that resilience you're going to try and build into these guys is going to be the best journey. I would love to watch this. I'm going to watch this. I would love to experience you getting to the top. And I think if anyone can do it, you can do it. Ange Posakoglu, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, that was a fantastic interview. As I said earlier, I could have talked to Ange for ages, and uh, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five people in this room, including Ange, and uh, everybody was just mesmerised with what he had to say. Sort of quite a thoughtful, purposeful bloke. Um, And I reckon he's going to do it. You know, he's got my money anyway. Okay, I've been away for a couple of weeks. Uh, Now, I was doing a whole lot of stuff in Europe, which I'm not sure if we're going to get a chance to talk about today, but. uh, and a, you know, a series of observations, but I, I guess what's important is that I, I want to know what's been going on here. So Nick, we've received lots of correspondence, lots of people engaging with us. Uh, you mentioned you, know, you want to, you think some of these people deserve a bit of a shout out. So what do you got for me? Yeah, absolutely.
3: Um, look, thanks for writing in, guys. You know, I, Dad and I read your emails. There are, you know, surprisingly, a, you know, we're a young show, but we've had a lot of people write in, um, and we, you know, I try to read them all and. And include them in the show in some way. But you know, if I can't get to you this week, um, I'll definitely look at you and and try to incorporate you in the coming coming weeks, perhaps months. Um, uh, so I guess the you know a young lady uh, wrote into the show, and she also attached uh, her pitch for her company Raw Mix. Um, it's a whole, it's a natural, all natural whole field Whole Foods company uh, raw ingredients, um, not overly processed, and it's you know. It, I, I she actually sent a sample through. Um, I actually didn't get a chance to to get. I got it sent to your office, Dad. I didn't get a chance to go in there this week, um, and I was worried it was going to go off. So I let the uh, the girls at the office get into it. Ali and uh, Michelle did uh, sample your treats, and um, I apologise that I didn't personally sample, but the girls really loved it. They you know they I think they they uh, polished off the whole lot.
2: They rated um, it, did they?
3: Yeah, they did, and um, they you know they both um, had. Exemplary things to say about the product—really tasty.
2: It's funny you should say because yesterday when I was in the office, they were all drinking these new juices and stuff, and I wonder—I was wondering what had inspired them to start to get all healthy. So yeah. I wonder if this is what happened.
3: Possibly, yeah. So um, I just want to have a quick chat about um, the pitch. Just a couple of takeaways. I think, you know, I watched it a few times, and the things that stood out to me—and these are um, uh, this is positive feedback. You know, you had attractive packaging, clear jar where I could see exactly what was in it. I mean, I go to the supermarket sometimes and I look in the—I I pick boxes of things up and I look at the ingredients but I, I sort of want to open it up and see what what I'm actually buying um, the fact that I could see exactly what was in your product um, that was appealing to me um, you've got a ready-made range um, for wholesale businesses for cafes I assume and, and other sort of distribution points but you've also got uh, a DIY mix as well for people at home that want to sort of blend it up um, I think the steps are blend shape set so you know it sounds like a bit of fun but also you know a lot of people want to sort of make you know your your mix into a into specific shapes. They might have kids that they want to put in a lunchbox and make a cool, I don't know, um, a dinosaur or something moulded out of, or um, something you know, finger sized treat for a, a party that they might be having. Um, and lastly, I, I think you appealed to you know a lot of Australians, including myself. They like to snack on things, and um, having um, a product that you know isn't a bag of chips or Um, a box of chocolates, which typically most snacks are. um, That appealed to me also. You know, I I don't like to eat healthy all the time, and sometimes I do just want something, you know, in the middle of the day that's going to satisfy my hunger but also not um, put kilos around my waist. Um, So, look, we're going to put... What's her name? Her name's Bree, and we're going to put her uh, pitch up on the site for everyone else to see. Maybe, um, you know, I think it's a good one to sort of learn from, um, very product-focused. I also mentioned to Bree that... We've got a, a pitch part of the site going up soon, but... Um Basically, the pitch part of the site is is more information for us. Um, there are certainly things – I've got a background in capital markets. I've seen hundreds of pitches, and there are certainly things that, you know, I want more detail on. Uh, we've got a bit of a, um, a structure, I guess, pro forma format. I don't, I don't want to be too prescriptive and, and, and give you a cookie-cutter thing to follow, but there are pieces of information that Dad and I want to look at before we assess and evaluate your business. Um, so, you know, that's going to go up, uh, um, I think, next week is when we're due to have um, – that part of the site up and running. So get online, um, have a look at what kind of information that we want from you guys and upload your pitch decks for us to sort of get some more info. Um, second person I have to give a shout out to is a lady by the name of Anne Holland. Um, this is a great story. It's, you know, she runs, a, you know, Anne is a mother of five, a nurse. And unfortunately, I'm not sure when it was, but not too long ago, she lost her husband to cardiac arrest. And um, she set up a great um, charity called um, Urban Lifesavers. And basically the aim is to to get more defibrillators into the community areas. Um, 33,000 people last year suffered cardiac arrest. Um, We've got mandatory building codes to put fire extinguishers and um, equipment to sort of mitigate, you know, deaths from fire. We only had 56 people die from, I think it was sorry, 86 people die from fire or smoke-related illnesses last year. Um, that could be because of all the preventative measures that we've got um, in, in community areas, in, in, in businesses and organisations. Um, and I'm not saying that we divert funding away from uh, from continuing to have that equipment in the area, but, you know, there's cardiac arrest and, and other heart-related illnesses is one of Australia's biggest killers. And it does does just simply doesn't make sense not having... Um, these parts, these pieces of equipment, as part of first aid kits and in community areas. Every gym
2: I went to in Europe last week, the week before, I had a defibril- defibrillator in it. Every yeah,
3: gym, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, I just want to sort of talk <clears throat> about the machine as well. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people. Yeah, we need, you know, we need the equipment there, but we also need people that know how to use these machines. And they're not hard to use. You know, the technology is quite sophisticated now. Defibrillators. You know, there, there are some myths out there that I'm sure. Um Anne's also writing a book by the way, and um, it talks about the seven myths of, of cardiac of cardiac arrest and defibrillators and the legal liabilities, all that sort of thing. And um, you know one of the myths is that these machines um, that you can actually do more damage to the person that's had cardiac arrest by defibrillating them. Apparently that's not not true. Um, and, you know, some of the legal liability um, myths out there are also not true. So, I mean, there aren't many good reasons why people shouldn't be learning how to use these machines and, you know, shouldn't be ready to defibrillate someone if someone's having a a, a cardiac arrest incident. Um, So Anne's next steps will be she's going to continue campaigning for the not-for-profit organisation, Urban Lifesavers, as I mentioned. She's due to launch the, the, the book, Back in a Heartbeat is the title, I also mentioned that um, that's apparently due out in October. Um, the proceeds will be no- donated to the, uh, the not-for-profit organisation of lifesavers. Lifesavers. Um, she needs leaders in the industry and commerce to get behind the campaign to raise awareness and um, how easily cardiac arrest can be reversed as a result of thousands of unavoidable deaths. Um, she also runs a business, Dfib First. Um, that's that actually is a commercial operation for her, um, but with quite a noble objective. She um, she's looking to um, get into you know if, if you have an organisation out there that and you don't want to wait for legislation, um, give her a call because her business will come into your bi- um, come into your business, teach people how to use these machines, and you might even want to buy Help one for your find
2: workplace. It. Help people find any good.
3: Uh, We're going to put her details up on the site. Um, Look, dfibfirst.com.au, urbanlifesavers.org.au. All that information will be repeated on the site. Excellent. Okay.
2: Well, while some way lots of stuff been happening here in Australia. By the way, if you're reading the Financial Times in Europe, you don't hear about what's going on in Australia other than we heard that I heard that, that we've got a new prime minister. Um, there was a strike here, mate. What was the strike about?
3: Um, there was a, there's a strike here over um, over the business Uber. Um, obviously, a very um, well-talked-about business at the moment. In fact, I think it's the most talked-about company on the planet at the moment. They're providing a really great service, I think. I've, I'm a big consumer of their products. And the strike has to do with the UberX service, which is the ride-sharing business. Um, for those that don't know what UberX is, it's basically anyone that can, you know, um, sign up with Uber, drive their car around, pick people up and, and charge for the service. So I'm on
2: my way to work. I'm going past um, I go past Hedgecliffe Station. I've signed up with UberX. Um, someone... Says that they're waiting at uh, Eastwood Station. They need a lift. I can they can jump in my car. What do I charge them? Well, I mean the minimum ride fare is
3: eight dollars, um, and it, it all depends. It, it all depends on how far you're going um, and what uh, they do. Work on a demand-driven, uh, market-driven model as well. So there, there is such a thing called surge pricing. So if it's really busy, prices do go up to sort of reflect you know, who wants the the ride the most. Um, but you know the the issue here with the taxis and the taxi community is that um, UberX drivers aren't regulated by the government. They they don't have to um, um, buy the taxi plates. They don't have they don't have uh, the passenger liability insurance. Although Uber does have an insurance policy of their own to sort of mitigate that. Um, the the issue here is that they have. Lower costs, lower overheads, and are able to pass those cost savings on to customers. In my experience using UberX, it's always invariably been cheaper than a taxi, and that's obviously taking a lot of business away from the taxi community. Okay, Jake, you're on, Blake. What,
2: what do you reckon?
0: I think Uber's awesome. I mean, No, I saw... UberX, UberX. Oh, yeah, UberX in particular. Well, I think the whole <laughs> Uber service is great, but... um. I mean I use I used Uber X to get here and you know, it cost me Did t- you? twelve bucks or something and So can
2: you tell me about the experience. You get it when well, you get in there, you, there's some you're a random
0: you get. Yeah, in there. so okay, so I, I book on my app and I press a little button <coughs> on the on the Uber app. Mm. Have pops up a little, little map and a picture of the driver that says, you know, his name. And his rating. Yep, photograph so I can see what the guy looks like. So it's not Ivan Milat. Nah. And if I don't like the they look get, of him, I can They get I can police checks.
3: They yeah. all get police checks. That's another myth out there. They're, they're not doing the proper okay. police checks. They do. Yep. There you
0: yep. go. And um, it gives me an ETA and I can follow him, his little beep on the map that yep. pops up on my phone. Yep. He turns up and gives me a little notification you that he's cash? No, it's all you enter your credit card details into okay, the, so into the app. Okay, so it's back in the new app. Yep. Yep. So you don't, you, there's no cash, there's no Change of cat, you know. There's no transaction, <laughs> just... no facility for a tip either. so you yeah, don't have to no... pay them a tip. You can if you're, you <laughs> you can, can put it in the <laughs> cheap. Yeah,
1: you,
0: yeah, that's very. You things, throw, him, you can throw ten bucks or three <laughs> bucks or whatever. Yeah, yeah you can give them cash if you want. Yeah. Um, and they turn up and the guy wakes out the front and. Would well, you have a chat with him? or?
3: Yeah, I always have a in the a front chat seat, back seat. Yeah. Would you do? I, I had a funny story. I um I had a Vietnamese middle aged Vietnamese mother pick me up just before work actually, and these guys aren't you know they haven't been um, trawling the streets of Sydney for long, so they don't know that the Sydney streets like the back of the hand like taxi drivers do. So I had to direct her a little bit. She, um, as, a, when I, as soon as I got in, she offered me a, a cold juice and a minty. <laughs> she said to me, she said, do you want a minty? And I said, I said sure, yeah. And It was a great oh, a great experience. We had a little chat about her. she's got two young boys. Um, it was a short ride from my place to the city. Um, but, you know, um, necked the juice and
2: ate the minty and on my way for a great day at work. Well, that, that's sort of pretty cool because like, uh, it's just a few extra dollars for her you probably to yourself, Look, otherwise I'm sitting in. I'm, I'm sitting in my car, absolutely, getting not, not getting paid. I'm still spending yeah. money in the petrol. I'm still paying for the insurance, the rego, blah blah blah. So what? Why, why? not make a dollar out of it? I yeah. think it's cool. It's. Uh, I mean, this is just dis- so disruptive. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. I mean, this is mm. one of the most disruptive concepts I've ever heard of. I mean, Lagos like, crazy. By the way, the same strikes are happening in Europe when I was there. Yeah. So particularly in Paris, I wasn't in Paris, but I was reading about them happening in Paris. Yeah. Um, so this whole Uber X thing is uh, a phenomenon. Like massive phenomenon, it'd be one of the biggest things. We'll all remember it. I mean, no wonder it's the most talked about company in the well, world. They've got,
3: they've got twenty thousand drivers signed up. That's more the, that's more people than Macquarie Bank employ. You know, it's it's amazing. They've been in, 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 how long has this Uber X app been now? It was only been three Uber four X is, is they came in first with Uber Black, and then they had the taxis on there. Uber X is the latest sort of installment. This was only this year though, wasn't it? This calendar. Uh, it's probably been going a lot longer in San Francisco, but, yeah, in Australia it's about 12 months, I think, yeah. Amazing,
2: amazing, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, and what a client base they got. I think the issue... Both the users and both users, yeah. you know.
0: Just on the strike, though, what a Like, why would you stop, like, take... as From the taxi industry point of view, why would you strike by taking... The cars off the road because they
2: want because the, yeah. what well, they're doing is trying to put pressure on government to regulate these guys. So I mean, a taxi driver in a taxi driver's defence, right? Yeah. But then, but they need, do need some defending because it's it's the taxi driver not the taxi industry. <laughs> a taxi driver is a guy who's gone out and paid a lot of money for the, the plate, taxi plates, yeah. um, has to maintain the car. Poor bloody taxi drivers! I feel sorry for them. The, 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 ultimately, the actual driver is probably getting paid 16, 16 bucks an hour, or something like that, or maybe twenty dollars an hour. They work long bloody hours. They go and pick people up in the King's Cross and get vomited on. Um, you know, your UberX people aren't, probably aren't doing that. Um, you know, they're picking up someone like Nick who's on his way to the, the office in the city or something along those lines. They're not sort of waiting in a taxi rank in King's Cross and get some guy, bash him and rob him, and vomit all over the back of their car at the same time. Yeah. I mean, uh, so there is, there is some balance to be looked Absolutely. at in, in relation to this. And these taxi drivers have been doing this the whole life. They're dedicated their whole life to it. So I, I get, I really love the disruption that UberX is doing. I get it. Um, but we do need some balance because we have a tax industry here who are all made up of little small business people, all of who contribute to the economy, all of whom put their kids through school, all of whom go and shop at the local shop, and we just don't want to see them totally displaced. I think that's the balancing side of the argument as opposed to the intellectual uh, appeal of what UberX is doing. It has intellectual appeal. It looks very democratising. In other words, it allows... Nick's little Vietnamese thing to uh, situation to uh, it's know, not exactly make, my little
3: Vietnam well, Vietnamese. Well, you know, thing your that. example, I mean, uh, <laughs>
2: to to allow Nick's example to make eight bucks or ten bucks or whatever it is she made and to give him a minty and a, a, and a juice. It's just the minty and juice, I swear. <laughs>
0: yeah, I hope, <laughs> I've I, actually met a couple of drivers, um, Uber X drivers who were ex taxi Drivers yeah. and have made the switch and gone, you know. Yeah, well, I don't that's, and, and that's what will happen, Jakey. Yeah. But um, yeah.
2: I guess what, what we've got to have here is we've got to have some balance. The Absolutely. government's got to allow that to happen. Yeah. So but, what, yeah. I, I guess what we don't want is just not when all taxi drivers get bashed, yep. you know, um, uh, and to go out of business and to, you know, be displaced all of a sudden because, yep. you know, then we'll have another problem. Yep. Um, so th- these things are fantastic. We just need to have some sort of intervention. I don't know what the intervention is going to be. I have no uh, idea. I mean,
3: Uber's like, you know, the, the call is for them to be regulated. Uber's welcome to that. They, they're, they're pushing for it. In fact, they've, they've asked for, you know people around the country to talk to their local MPs about getting them regulated. Um, but I think, you know, Shadow Treasurer um, Michael O'Brien from Victoria said something interesting. He said, the Victorians are voting with their feet. Some are choosing to use Uber and it's up to the government to make sure the law reflects reality. We want it. I mean, that's yeah, affecting yeah. positive social change. And I think, you know, given it's such a great service, it, let's, let's be honest, a couple of years ago before Uber arrived, a, a traditional taxi or conventional taxi experience is pretty poor. You know, I had to, you know, using, had to call in and wait for, for hours for my taxi to arrive. Um, sometimes the taxi smelt, sometimes the taxi driver smelt. Um, you know, and, and, you know, on a Saturday night, like you're talking about, come one o'clock or two o'clock when it's approaching changeover, you just couldn't get a, a cab. Um, but you won't stopped, get to a breaks in either. Well, no, i sure I was using, I was, not maybe not Uber. I, oh. You know, I haven't, I haven't been Uber, out. Of, yes. I haven't, I haven't been out at that time in a while, but um, but yeah, I've got an Uber black. Hang target. on, hang on, hang on. Oh, last last Friday night, Nick, <laughs> when I look like Nick. a little Spanish
2: fruit topping down yeah, the road, yeah. there, the Versace Nick. party. Yeah, you were yeah, yeah. At Versace because I got because you didn't come <laughs> to the football with me on Friday night because I and I, the message, Saturday night I was out. Yeah, Saturday, yeah. I got the message a house party or something yeah, like
3: that. a double, the double,
2: It yeah, <laughs> double up on the weekend. the correct. So did you get? Uh, did how did you get home on? Still managed to do all my work for the podcast. I know you did. You had two fucking weeks today, mate.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 how did you get home on? Let me say, come on, tell the truth. How did you get home? We, we got, we we got. Well, a, shame the devil. Yeah. Tell the truth. or Shame the devil. <laughs> what time did you get home on Saturday morning from the Friday night house party, and how did you get home?
3: Um, I, got, <clears> I actually got a, I actually got a, an Uber on the Friday night, but an, and I got a taxi on the Saturday night. So I'm, I'm sharing the love. I'm keep,
2: I'm, <laughs> I'm keeping. So the, the everyone point happy you're trying with. to make, you and I think that's sort of part of it all. Yeah. Um. It, it's I agree. <clears throat> the Uber concept is brilliant. I mean, it is brilliant. I, I just I just love the story, right? And I actually think it has a great outcome, which is why it's so brilliant, because it's democratised and made <clears throat> commerce available to everybody who has a vehicle, which makes sense. And also it, it allows the taxi industry to shape up or ship out. Absolutely. Because if they don't get better cabs and get better drivers and provide the service when everybody needs it at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, et cetera, and provide it at the right price, because, you know, the pricing's regulated yep. by the industry. Uh, that will make sense. <clears throat> but equally, the individual drivers who drive for the taxi industry, <clears throat> excuse me, are not to be held responsible for what the taxi industry does. Yeah. So it's going to come down to some balance and some regulation and government intervention, yep. but it's also going to come down to really what we're trying to break up is a taxi industry, as mm-hmm. opposed to we don't want to break up the taxi drivers. And what Jakey said earlier, we've got to make it easy for transition for because ta- if yep. a taxi driver can come across... It might turn out that a taxi driver can make as much money <clears throat> being an UberX style person yep. as he or she could make being a taxi driver yep. after the taxi industry takes their, takes their cut. Their cut. Yeah, yep. exactly. That's what that's what we've got to get to, and Think probably it's going to be very close.
0: Yeah. A interesting thing with the UberX model too is that a lot of drivers, potentially the taxi drivers who are make, thinking about making the switch, are a bit <clears> worried <throat> about the you know the the driver actually does get less per kilometer than a taxi driver. The Uber, the company itself, my understanding is they actually promise a minimum payment per hour. Mm. So if it's quiet, they'll still get paid. I think it's about thirty dollars an hour, regardless. Well, oh, that's how more many than that. a taxi do. driver would get anyway. Yeah, mm. for sure. It's just to encourage more drivers to come on. I'm not sure if that's just something that's, you know, temporary. But mm. yeah, it's an interesting idea to get more drivers on board and to guarantee that you know they can do it for. Well, us, this, yeah.
2: anyway, this, I, look, it's it's great stuff. You guys. Perfectly positioned. I haven't tried it. I've tried Uber, but I haven't tried UberX. Um, it's perfectly positioned. It's a brilliant story. We're going to continue to watch this. We're big supporters here at uh, the podcast for Uber generally, like massively big supporters. And I think it's probably one of the most exciting things that's going to hit us in the next ten years. I mean, it's, to me, it's one of the most. Exciting. This is this is this is um, Microsoft. It's a fifty billion, <clears throat> um, you know, valuation already. You know? And if you read their, their their story about how they raise money through the different yeah. stages of raising the money, it's been incredible how yeah. much money they've raised. Imagine
3: what what would happen if they started delivering product. I mean, they could even shake up the logistics industry.
2: Hundred percent. I'm no doubt that's got, what is what's going to happen because yeah. one of the issues about the logistics industry is yeah. you can't afford to pay a, a, a courier mm. money to deliver things to people's home when they're home. Mm. And all of a sudden people are going to start saying, well, I'm on my way home and uh, yep. I'll be the Uber deliverer mm. for my street. Mm. So I'm the guy who's going to be allocated delivering for everything for my street. So on the way home, I've got time. I'm going to drop into the FedEx store or the uh, UPS store or I'm going to drop into, you know, the Australia Post store if they let you or in this in Courier's Police store, you know, and I'm going to drop in and I'm going to be the guy for my street and I'm going to deliver everything to everybody in the street. It's exciting. And I'm, I'm going to get paid a buck, $2 for everybody, for everything I
0: deliver. I've, so, met, I've met a couple of drivers who have um, told me stories about people wanting them to go and pick up their pizzas because you can contact the Uber driver. Mm. They're all up for it. So they're like, they've mentioned it to me, you know, if you get me, if I pop up on the app, you want me to go pick up your pizza, just go, boop, pick up at the pizza shop, go and grab the pizza, boop, set your destination, the Uber driver will bring you your pizza.
2: Well, that, what's interesting Wait, about is, it, is that Uber's going to have to control... All this because people are going to start getting all these new ideas like you just got then, and they're going to start breaking away. It's going to, so one day Uber will be the taxi industry, Uber will be the Uber industry, and someone will come up with something to uh, break that up too. So, sure. it's, what else happened, Nico? Um So, <clears> I think there's a bit of being you know
3: there's a bit of a movement going on. Uh, you know, with Malcolm Turnbull coming into into government and uh, venture capital getting a, a big boost. Um, Why?
2: Why is Malcolm Turnbull associated with the venture capital, Nick?
3: Well, look he's you know he's built startups himself he's uh, worked in capital markets so he's you know directed funds to businesses um, he's been the minister for communications you know taking control of big infrastructure projects like the MBN that support you know technology businesses and and the flow of information um, so I think he's a guy that, that gets it and I think you know most a lot of people out there are sort of starting to recognize this and they're, and they're, a lot of lobby groups are coming through and, and starting to make a bit of noise hopefully um, hoping that Malcolm will be the guy that champions their cause. Um, I hope he will be, um, as you probably do also. Um, something that I, I, that I read the other day in the AFR was um, two of the country's biggest super funds, uh, First State Super, um, Host Plus Super, about seventy billion in funds under management have. Taken a bit of a cultural shift and and, and directed a bit of money towards um, one of Australia's well-known venture capital funds, Blackbird Ventures. They've given them about two hundred million bucks to invest in um, early stage businesses, startups. Um, I think that represents um, uh, it, you know traditionally Australia's been quite, conser- especially for superannuants, has been quite conservative in the way that they invest. You know, typically investing in ASX two hundred companies, blue chip style businesses. I think you know, especially with the markets the way they are at the moment. Uh, we've got to start looking at alternative style of investing and, and trying to sort of produce those returns that, you know, traditional methods simply haven't been able to do to date. So, I mean, if you were to invest in the ASX 200, for instance, at the start of the, you know, bought in at 2nd
2: January, um, you'd be down 7% today. So, well, that's uh, an interesting concept, because um, <clears throat> in ni- um, 19, 2001, there was a company in Australia called Deutsche Asset Management. which is yep. Deutsche Bank subsidiary, yep. but it was an asset manager. Yep. And Deutsche Asset Manager... The Asset Management, I should say, um, had two guys in there, Peter Dowding and Gene Lorenz, who were their directors, and they can they managed funds for state super, uh, public super super funds, Commonwealth Bank super Super funds, like three really big super funds, yep. and the military super fund. Yep. And uh, they actually invested in Wizard in 2001. And yeah. they invested, they're similar to what you're talking about, they had a, I think they had $200 million then. Yep. And... They invested part of that $200 million, $60 million of that, they invested into the wizard business and they came in with me and Kerry. So yep. they took a third. Yep. After the GFC, everything fell away. And, uh, you know, they made a lot of money out of their transaction. But that type, that fund actually folded and uh, those venture capitalists, which were funded by superannuation money, just disappeared and superannuation monies then decided just to invest in the ASX, go back to what they considered to be the conventional right. investing. Yep. And uh, it's great to see since 2008... Maybe a little bit early, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So we're now fifteen. It's eight, nine years. They're starting to go back into that environment. This is a significant turn, yep. um, and probably a significant recognition of the volatility issues related to investing in the ASX or yeah, those sorts you of asset classes. Head.
3: Volatility is the new norm, and even in the mature markets, the listed mar- capital markets. <clears> and you know, I mean, we've got. I'm not saying that we should, you know, put all of our money into into startups. I and mean, we've got two trillion in assets under management, superannuation if we can just divert 5% of that Mm. to to early-stage businesses, we've got $100 billion to invest. Um, I mean, there are some smart guys out there, asset managers who know how to diversify, know how to manage portfolios. We should be giving more money to venture capital businesses because it should be part of everybody's portfolio. I mean, you need to have... Early-stage equities, um, mature-stage equities, bonds, cash, or, um, property, all sorts of assets in your portfolio to diversify
2: yourself against the risk but also produce good returns. And it doesn't even have to be equity. It can be notes. So, you yep. know, uh, these these uh, early-stage funds – um, which want to invest in startups, or, yep. you know, or the next stage of startups. I mean, there's various stages, but they could lend the money to the company yep. for a, for a, an interest rate with the option to be able to convert that to equity at any time at a yep. certain price. So it doesn't even have to be equities; it can be exactly it's debt. just get them the money they need. You know? Correct? But, yeah, exactly. And and give them the give them the the assistance they need yep. to make them better. Yep. And what you, I think the point you're trying to make early was, in order for this to be more attractive to these um, fund managers. And to attract more money into these funds out of the traditional superannuation investment environments, maybe the government could do something about uh, you know, appointing a minister for innovation, giving them some, maybe some tax breaks yep. or some other Absolutely. sort of incentives to do this. Absolutely. And uh, that way we get more money into private enterprise, startups, entrepreneurship, which ultimately will build more businesses and provide more jobs. For the taxi drivers who are going to lose their job as a result of what ubrex is doing yep. because we need more we need more enterprise yep
3: we're, we're, we're you know we're a highly skilled economy this is probably the next stage of our development i mean we you know we, we started with agriculture you know we probably lost our competitive streak there and then it was mining and we all know how, how that's going at the moment and i think you know we're we're an economy with you know high development index high um human development index um we're smart people. We want to enjoy. I mean, the only way we can compete now is by using our brains, using what, you know, what. What what the country has 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 got plenty of, which is education. You know,
2: smart people. I'm looking at your forehead, mate. It looks like one of your brains trying to jump out of your head. What's that pimple on your head this morning? It's like the one I had when I got married when I was twenty. Actually,
3: I'm going to be on. I'm going to be. On, that's a good segue. I'm going to be on camera today, shooting the incubators uh, for next week's show. So you just may be really self
2: conscious. So you, you better get some of the makeup I I'm was gonna, I
3: was going to say, mate, you might have to put me onto your makeup girl. Oh, that's <laughs> oh,
2: the that makeup you wore on Friday what's night. So, what salon do you go to? Mate? <laughs> so so but. but it your, what one of the points I just wanted to make, just closing off, is that, and the point you're trying to make is yeah. that we are a great country. We are very competitive, and it's sort of what Ange Postecoglou was saying earlier. Yeah. Australia outperforms in everything it does relative to our size and everything else, and our age to some extent. And there's no reason why we can't outperform in this environment: startups, yeah. entrepreneurship, innovation. Or, innovation probably is the best word. And what we want is the government to look at that yeah. and. Um, Shouldn't take lobby lobbying. I mean, you would hope that the government can recognise it without being lobbied because yep. it shouldn't be politically motivated mm. because someone's got a lobby group. Mm. It should be someone who recognises innovation. And I think Malcolm Turnbull, you're right, Malcolm Turnbull is a really super smart guy and switched on. And that's the sort of thing he used to do. He used to invest in startups and all those yeah. sorts of things. I've sure. seen some of the things he invested in. Yep. So let's hope that uh, he's going to transfer that experience mm. into government and make Australia a much better place to start up in. Yep, absolutely.
0: Looking forward, this is The Week Ahead.
3: Okay, guys, what's for next week? So next week, um, I'm at, as promised, I'm out and about today looking at all the incubators. We've got four really interesting spots that uh, have welcomed us into their um, facilities. So we're going to be talking to the managers, talking to the resident startups, um, asking some of the questions that we asked a few weeks ago. Um, that'll be next week's show, the focus of next week's show. Um, and the week after that, we've got um, some special guests coming in. We've got our, my mates from the streets of Sydney. They're a, a comedic group that are, doing, that are doing a mockumentary on um, on some of Sydney's stereotypes. Um, they're going to come in and um, they're going to bring a couple of the guys that are in, in the documentary as well to have a chat to you, Dad.
2: They're uh, not mocking me, are they? <laughs> no, they're, not,
3: they're uh, Well, they might. They might. They might have a little jab. But um, I think you know there is a business story behind what these guys are doing. My mate, Tom Birmingham has, and, 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 you know, not to discount the other guys that have done it with him, um, they've written, acted, directed, produced and will eventually syndicate it all themselves, you know, on a shoestring budget. So, um, you know, Jake – Jake and I were just talking about, you know, startups. They're not just software businesses, not just, just technology business. Entrepreneurship is taking a risk for a commercial outcome, and that's what these guys have done. Um, but we're also going to plenty of fun to be had as well. We're going to have a, a good chat to a couple of the guys that uh, that feature in their in their new documentary as well. So, um, and and also Gen- Genevieve George will be joining us on the show as well. She's um, the twenty-four or five-year-old founder of One Shift Jobs, I think the last post-money valuation they got was around thirty or forty million bucks. She's, you know, started the business when she was twenty-two or twenty-three. She's now twenty-four or twenty-five, um, running a business that's worth tens of millions of dollars. Very impressive girl. Very switched on. She'll be um, in the studio to help us um, help us pull apart the Australian
2: startup environment. Perfect. And cool. you know, it's funny. I had a well, interestingly, if I had a long conversation with my good friend Daniel Petrie yesterday, um, and. Uh, not everyone knows who Daniel is, but everyone in this room will know who Daniel Petrie is, yeah. and uh, he runs a star- He runs a fund that invests in startups, and uh, he's on his way to America. And he and I were talking about, in fact, this podcast, and and, and how important, and uh, how important it is to recognise how TV's television television's changing, particularly mainstream TV, and how and radio, and how podcasting has become a far more interesting medium, mm. um, amongst all the media. And uh, he's going to uh, come in and have a chat to us when he comes back from America in the next cool. few weeks. And uh, he's a guy I have a great amount of time for, and a huge talent, and he's just about seen everything. Being, I think, he ran Microsoft in Asia, Asia back for a long, long time before he uh, set up. He caught with Kerry Packer in the okay. late '90s, and uh, of course, he was on the board of Wizard um, yep. back in the early days. And he was one of my, he was my very first investor. Yep. So, uh, look forward to talking to Daniel Petrie in due
0: course too. So, good, it's a wrap. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Boris and find out more at markboris.com.au.